Hi, and welcome to Why Do We Do That, a psychology podcast that deconstructs human behavior from the perspectives of social scientists, psychologists, and others that use applied psychology in their field. I'm your host, Dr. Ryan Moyer. In this episode, I sit down with Dr. Rachel Pauletti. Rachel is an associate professor of psychology at Lynn University in Boca Raton. She earned her PhD from Florida Atlantic University, where her research focused on personality development. Uh, She also uh, has done a lot of work in the area of childhood aggression, gender identity, and the self-concept. And we're going to talk a lot about her work on gender identity in this conversation. There's a lot of controversy surrounding conversations related to gender in 2020. A lot of it has to do with whether or not gender differences are driven by biological factors uh, or social factors. And uh, we get into a conversation about, uh, about masculinity and femininity uh, in young people. And in my opinion, it, I don't see it as a very controversial issue. I think it's pretty much okay to uh, to raise boys that are masculine. It's okay to raise girls that are feminine. Um, I don't think that it's a good idea to uh, raise your children um, in a way that would that would sort of force them to be gender neutral. I don't think there's any value in that. I don't I don't think there's any evidence that that's um, that that's a, a going to have a, a positive outcome uh, on on their child's lives. Uh, I think that I think that the evidence suggests that children learn a lot about themselves by engaging in uh, behavior that is typical of their gender. And uh, Rachel talks about that. Uh, a little bit in our conversation. Now, that being said, I do think there is a lot of room for improvement in our culture with respect to how gender and gender norms are considered when raising children. And that is that I think boys shouldn't only have masculine strengths. Girls shouldn't only have feminine strengths. Children shouldn't be chastised for merely exploring behaviors or norms that are associated with the opposite gender. And I think that's a pretty good sensible approach that that parents could all work on. We also address the hypothetical situation of a young child that is prepubescent uh, wanting to identify as the sex that is the opposite of their their biologically born sex and i'll state the obvious that no child should be mistreated because they have these desires i think that should be uh, i think that that is well agreed upon uh, across the board, um, but how parents should address this—that is—that is a question that is um, that that is very difficult to answer, and I'm sure it varies from case to case. The scientific community is slowly starting to gather 
perspectives on this matter. Specifically, uh, there was a book that came out recently uh, called The End of Gender, uh, Debunking the Myths About Sex and Identity in Our Society uh, by Deborah So. I haven't gotten around to reading it yet, but she tackles that topic. There's some other resources that tackle this topic. And if there's one thing that we know is not true, it is that this can be solved by saying, well, uh, whatever the child wants, whatever they want, uh, that is the correct thing to do, whatever makes them happy. Um, on the surface, that sounds like a great idea, but that kind of logic falls apart when you, when you look at other examples that that would fit for. Um, if, if a child were allowed to decide their bedtime, they'd be up till two in the morning and they'd never get proper sleep. Uh, and then they'd have cake for breakfast, right? All of those behaviors would fit under the logic of, well, whatever the child wants, that is what we're going with, right? Um, the reality is that uh, parents need to uh, make decisions for their children to sacrifice their short-term happiness in favor of some sort of long-term goal. And so while I'm not claiming that there's a very clear-cut answer on what parents should do when their child wants to identify as the opposite sex that they were born, um, I think it's fair to have a little bit of pause and, and really engage in some critical thinking around these situations. So without any further ado, uh, here is my conversation with Dr. Rachel Pauletti. All right. Uh, so we're here with uh, Rachel Pauletti. Uh, thank you for joining me, my friend. I really appreciate it. Yeah, my pleasure. So um, I remember uh, back in uh, a grad school. Uh, so this is 2000, well, 2007, 2008, maybe. Yeah, something. Um, yeah. I remember um, when I first learned about the construct of gender identity. And it was, it was very eye-opening, right? Because before that, I, I, was, I wasn't even aware of this idea that there's, you know, there's the, your biological sex, and then there is how you feel, how, you, how, how you, you interpret that, and how you feel inside your body, psychologically speaking. Um, it, it was a very eye-opening uh, concept. And back then, it was very... It was new to me. It was probably just gathering some momentum, but it was it was very descriptive, and and there was a lot of research going on in that area. Fast forward to today. Now, there's energy and and a certain aggression around uh, the idea of gender identity, where you know you, you you must use this specific language, and if you're not, you are a bigot. Um, it, it's a different feeling overall. Um, could you talk a little bit about um, about the the construct of of gender identity for us? So yeah, it's interesting you say that because um, before I even started the grad program that we went to, uh, I got a chance to read some of the research that my future PhD advisor was doing, and I read all these papers on gender identity, and it was really eye opening for me too because I was under the assumption that the only 
thing we're ever talking about when we talk about gender identity is transgender identity. So um, the research on gender identity is actually a, a lot more sort of diverse than that in the sense that we're often um, talking about gender identity, at least in children and in some cases with adults, we're talking more about how much or how well uh, gender fits into your identity. And that's really what we're talking about when we talk about gender identity. So um, instead of just thinking about it as um, gender identity being whether someone's cognitive or self ideas fit with their biological sex, instead we're talking about things like um, how salient gender is to you on a daily basis or how um, important gender is to you in your day-to-day life, uh, those kinds of things. Or just generally right. speaking, like how well you fit in with people of your sex. Right, right. So, um, yeah, so let's let's distinguish, right? So we have um, children develop a, a sense of their gender identity. There's a whole big space uh, that you can look at in terms of, you know, you have boys that, you know, perfectly, um, uh, perfectly normal, uh, perfectly healthy young men, young women, and some of them are just, they feel slightly more masculine or slightly more feminine. That So that's, that's probably most of the gender identity research. And then, then there's something completely different, which is I, um, I completely identify with a, with a different gender than my biological sex. So there are two different concepts here that we're talking about, right? Oh, completely. And I mean, I think that's, it's really interesting because I don't even think that most kids really think of it that way. Um, in the sense that kids can pretty adequately communicate to adults that like they have interests that are cross-gendered so if you ask a little boy hey do you prefer playing with girls toys or boys toys they can tell you pretty clearly which of those things they prefer doing as long as they're comfortable telling you those things um but this idea that i identify as you know cross-gender i identify as male or female, I mean, most children at the age that we're talking about here don't even necessarily have that concept in their minds. And I mean, I think one thing that's really important to point out is that um, some sense of gender confusion is actually really quite normative in the process of, of normal gender development. So um, up until kids are about age seven, um, they have a really hard time distinguishing behavior from identity. So if you take a little girl, you know, I have a seven-year-old girl, and if you take her and um, she is, let's say, really interested in boy-type things, like, and my daughter is, so she's really interested in playing with swords and dressing up as a pirate and things like that. Um, you know, when she's five or six years old, um, she's saying things like, I'm half boy, half girl, or I'm a boy. And she's saying that because it's actually really developmentally normal for kids who are five and six years old to to believe that they are a specific gender just because of their interests. So it's not things like, it's not identify in the sense that adult, adults are using the term identify where they are sort of making this direct connection between their, or this direct distinction between their biological sex and their um, behaviors. Kids are really, 
um, kind of equating the two things. I mean, they really do think that their biological sex is changeable um, up until they're about age seven when, when they achieve what we call gender constancy. I see. Uh, so the um, so what what are what are the concepts that are used to to uh, uh, quantify or, or research gender identity? So um, the sort of main uh, way to think about gender identity in childhood is that it's multidimensional. So we have things like um, gender typicality, just how how similar do you feel to other members of your sex? Um, there's also between gender typicality or other gender typicality, which is how similar you feel to um, members of the other sex. And that's an important distinction uh, within and between gender typicality. Um, these two things are, are inversely related to each other. So most of the time, kids who feel really strongly similar to their biological sex feel dissimilar to the other sex. But there are all kinds of kids who actually feel like they have similarities to both sexes. We call those kids psychologically androgynous. Yeah, um, it's, it, that's a com it's it's interesting because that's you know a lot of there are a lot of psychological measures that are that are like that where you you can't just think of it as one scale one spectrum. You have to consider them as independent scales, right? Yeah, oh, yeah. And there's been a lot of internal debate over that. I mean, even in my lab and in the research we published, there's been debate over whether we should con whether we should consider that a continuum. And I mean, for decades, it really was thought of as a single continuum, um, you know, until about the early 70s when we started to think of those as two things. Statistically, they're still not completely independent, but I mean, they can conceptually they're independent enough that we can definitely um, observe people who are high in both of those dimensions so people who are both other and same gender typed simultaneously mm -hmm. now now you mentioned so children typically uh, so they, they they don't distinguish between um, identity and sort of you know, you know masculine feminine like their their identity doesn't start to set until seven or eight yeah i mean and that yeah. that applies to all their identities too by this way this isn't just a gender thing children are are very superficial i mean they right. identify as things that they can see so, so when you ask them go ahead sorry no go ahead so when you ask them like how would they describe themselves you know you and me might describe ourselves in terms of adjectives so we might say i'm funny i'm um, you know, political, I'm active, I'm educated, you know, kids are going to describe themselves as I'm a girl, I'm seven, um, I'm a Girl Scout. Uh, they're not describing themselves in terms of these sort of deep psychological constructs in the way that older children and adults are. Mm -hmm. uh, now, it appears to me that in, in recent, uh, recent times that there is a there's a trend for um, for away from raising children as gender typical and a trend more towards sort of um, parents that are creating like actively and aggressively creating blank slates like we're not going to push our kids to be uh, you know I'm not going to push my son to be masculine uh, and I'm definitely not going to push my daughter to be feminine. And and it, it feels very, um, very aggressive in terms of 
how much effort goes in to making uh, uh, you know, the color of the room, the toys, everything gender neutral. Is that, um, do you think that is, do you think that's healthy? Is that not healthy? Yeah, this is sort of a, a loaded argument. On the one hand, I definitely understand and respect parents wanting to make their children feel like they have a lot of options. And this is related to another dimension of gender identity, by the way, which we call felt pressure for gender conformity. So children who feel a lot of pressure to strictly adhere to like behaviors that are normal for their sex um, uh, do experience bad things. I mean, they have low self-esteem, they have depression, they have anxiety. And I mean, we're talking about young kids, you know, seven, eight, nine years old. So when they feel like they're restricted in that way, it's, it's bad for them. Um, and this is especially true for girls. So I definitely understand parents um, you know, like I said, I have two girls myself, so I really do understand parents who uh, want to sort of minimize the strong impact of gender on their children's lives. However, the research is also really quite clear in demonstrating that gender is really important to children. It's important to children in a way that it's not important to adults. Um, they want to fit in. Um, you know, and like, and that goes back to what I said earlier, that children are really quite superficial. So, and they need these superficial um, sort of groupings like biological sex to help them figure out where their place is in life. You know, you and me as adults can fit in based on, um, you know, our uh, shared affiliation for football or on psychology. Children don't have those deeper identities. So when you take gender away from them, it actually ends up isolating them quite a bit. Um, yeah, and that, that's, that's so interesting because, and, and that makes perfect sense. It, it, it's, um, you know, just don't, right, the whole point that what I'm hearing is don't be aggressive about um, restricting the behavior of the children. Like, you know, when, when, when a, a young boy picks up the dollies or whatever and starts playing with, you know, a Barbie doll or something, you don't slap the Barbie out of his hand and say, quit playing with girl, uh, with girl toys, be a man. Like these are, these are all the negative behaviors that, that we're trying to desperately avoid because, you know, they're just children. And that's the, that's the real pro That's what needs to be uh, removed from the child rearing process. But what you're saying is that um, it is it's healthy to reinforce um, children's gender be, because it, it, it helps them it helps them form their identity. Oh, for sure. Yeah. I mean, it's one of their first identities, and I also think we need to acknowledge that um, children are going to be drawn towards specific behaviors, and some of those behaviors are going to be sex specific. It doesn't indicate that they are normal or abnormal or anything like that. I mean, there are all kinds of reasons why um, a boy is going to be drawn toward um, toys that are targeted to boys. And there's all kinds of reasons, biological and social, why girls are going to be drawn toward girls that are uh, toys that are marketed towards girls. And I, I think it's important, like you said, I mean, it's it's the pressure piece. And, and by the way, that pressure piece goes back well before my research and, and well before others. I mean, my research is just based on research that came out of the women's liberation movement in the early 70s that said, hey, it's okay if people feel typical of their gender. It's okay if people attach 
quite a bit of their identity to their gender as long as they don't feel like they have to. And I right, think that right, that right. have to piece is what we've sort of gone overboard in correcting. Yeah, yeah, that, that, that is, that's true. And now, now you mentioned the, uh, you mentioned the, uh, you know, fitting in kind of, you know, one of the aspects of identifying with your gender is it, yeah, it helps you fit in. And I, you know, it's interesting because I've had conversations about this and, you know, there, there's some that hold the view that, um, that, it, you know, if, if a young boy is, um, is extremely, well, let's just say a young boy who's above average in terms of their femininity and they go to school and they get picked on, right? Um, some, some view that solution as, uh, that everyone else needs to change. There's nothing, there's nothing wrong with that child and, and, and everything, you know, there's everything is wrong with the kids in the school. Now, obviously there's nothing wrong with the child, but those that, that argue that the, the students are problematic, we need to change their perspectives, will also say that it's a bad idea to maybe explain to the boy that the reason why they're being mistreated is because this there are certain behaviors that are more common in in boys and common in girls and that's why they're doing it um how do you how do you see that that social pressure issue for for young for young kids yeah, that's a tough question because, I mean, I've done a fair amount of research with this. I published on this topic. Um, kids are kids are mean to, to, to children who engage in cross-gender type behaviors. You know, but one thing that I think is, is really important to identify, too, is that um, they're not mean universally. So there actually appears to be, uh, there's a lot of evidence, it's not just mine either, that um, it's not the case that it's like all hundred seventh graders in the seventh grade class that are picking on this cross gender type kid. Instead, it appears as though it's actually a fairly small group of people that are engaging in that kind of um, bullying. And those are kids who, um, you know, feel very strongly about gender, uh, who feel that gender is something that should really drive everyone's behavior, including their own. Um, so, I mean, I'm all about inclusivity. I think it's important for kids to feel safe when they're in school. Um, but I don't necessarily think that, um, an intervention, um, needs to be done school-wide. I mean, again, I think especially in today's day and age, most kids are actually really inclusive. They're really understanding. I mean, they're growing up in an age where, um, everything is, is a bit more open. And so I think like naturally we're going to see a bit of a decline in this. Um, but I mean, I think it's interesting that I think, you know, we sort of come full circle with this argument and it appears to be the case that kids with certain kinds of gender identity, like children who feel that pressure to engage in, in same gender behavior are the kids who are most likely to, in, to pick on cross gender type kids. So, I mean, this is, again, just sort of goes back to my point that, that gender identity is really, really, really important. It's not, and, and it, and, and. We, we don't necessarily 100% know why it's important, um, but it certainly is more important to children than it is to adults. I mean, there's not a lot of research about these constructs in adulthood, and I refuse to believe that it's just because um, people aren't conducting this research. I think there's just not a lot of 
there aren't a lot of patterns to be detected. These things just don't matter to adults the way they matter to kids. And one thing that I said at the last conference that I presented at on this topic was that, you know, we look at this stuff from an adult lens, you know, oh, gender isn't important to me. So it, it, you know, I really need to teach my kids that it shouldn't be important to them. But, you know, one thing that comes out of developmental psychology over and over and over again is that kids are different than adults. Their brains work differently than adults' brains work. And we shouldn't assume that it's going to be any different for gender. Mm-hmm. They, they so, perceive gender differently than we do. Right. Now, in terms of, um, so, uh, you know, it, it always seemed to me that it would be in the best interest of, um, of a species to, like, l- to lean in to the, the biological stuff that we're dealt with. So they're, I'm going to say something that some find controversial, but there, there are biological differences between <laughs> between males and females. It's, and, yeah. <laughs> it um, should not be controversial, but yes, yes. Yeah, yeah. There, there are a lot of biological differences between males and females, and um, and I always thought it would be a good it, it it's a good idea for um, to lean into those differences, not to not to. Uh, so uh, again, when I say lean into them, I mean. Uh, I don't find anything disturbing about um, about a, a male going to work, uh, making a living, the female staying at home, being a caretaker, as long as both both parties are in agreement and there's not some sort of, you know, the woman wants to work and he won't let her because that's not right. You know, that's Probably. all bullshit. That's all bullshit, right? We can agree right. that that's all bullshit. Um, uh, I don't find anything wrong with with these types of gender roles where you know the 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 female stays at home and because you know biologically they 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 are a little bit better at being a caretaker. Um, well, and they're also, I mean, they tend to be more more interested and engaged in that process as well. Just, I mean, because I, I think I think one thing about caretaking is that like you can, I mean, you can train anyone to change a diaper. You can train. Any adult can be conditioned to respond to a cry. Um, but, I mean, I do think there's something to be said that, that women are, are more interested in child rearing and that we can see reflections of that in childhood. I mean, um, you know, there, there is this, this perception that toy companies have some conspiracy to uh, sort of create a child care instinct in girls. Uh, and that's why they, they sell dolls to girls and things like that. You know, the other possible argument is that, which I don't think is that controversial, is that girls like to play with dolls. um, And that probably has something to do with um, a biological, uh, and based in evolution, that girls are more interested in caretaking. And this is reflected very early on in childhood. Um, Yeah, you know, the specifically toys, it is kind of interesting. I mean, I've uh, in my experience, when I hear when, when I've talked to parents, they they say that they're they're do they're they're and I mean I'm talking about the you know zero felt pressure for, for <laughs> aligning with your biological sex, but uh, there, there's there's generally uh, an agreement that that there are some toy preferences that occur that are not explained by parents 
like nudge, nudging them towards one direction or other. Are, do, is there is uh, could you talk a little bit more about uh, about um, about toy preference? Yeah, there's a lot a lot of different ways to go on that. So. Okay. Um, so there's certainly theories of socialization. Um, there's a lot of research going back decades, which shows that kids seem to want to engage in, they want to play with toys that their same-sex parent, uh, that, that, that look like the things that their same-sex parent are working with. So for girls, um, you know, they're, they're watching mom all day. Um, they're watching mom do these sort of traditionally female things like caretaking, like cooking, like cleaning. So they're going to be drawn to those toys. Um, and boys are watching their dads do things like mow the lawn and, and work with their tool set in the garage. And so they're going to want to, you know, have toys that, that look like those things. Um, the, that is a socialization argument. So that the direct implication there is that, um, children are being socialized, they're being, they're learning through observation um, that this is what males and females do. And there's a lot of research about um, gender roles, how they're socialized, et cetera. And there's, you know, I mean, frankly, there's a fair amount of robust evidence that children who, for instance, grow up in more traditional homes um, are more likely to adopt these traditional gender roles themselves. Um, so I don't think it's the case that toy preferences can be explained entirely biologically. Um, however, there's, there's also research with other species, which tells us that um, a socialization argument, I mean, a socialization argument is hard to make. You don't have, Mattel is not making toys for chimpanzees. And yet we see differences in toy preference in, in other primates, um, which again would suggest that there's a biological role being played here. Okay. So it's sort of, I mean, I hate to, I hate to sort of uh, reduce this to a nature nurture argument, um, but children's toy preferences, the fact that they seem to um, mimic the adult roles that they have, there's also an evolutionary argument to be made there that children are motivated to engage in behaviors that are practice for adult roles. And evolutionarily, that would have meant for girls, that would have meant things like caretaking, they're motivated biologically to to copy their female relatives because they're preparing for that role. Right. And so boys, I, I, yeah, so I guess, I, yeah, so I would wonder then, I guess, to, to support that. So you, I, I'd be interested in looking at, um, yeah, in, in non-traditional childhood you know, development um, situations where you might have um, either two, ma you know, uh, two male parents, right, to to uh, a gay man that adopt a child or two gay women that adopt a child. I I'd be curious as to see if if the toy preferences would differ across across because like you could rule out right, you could rule out um, a couple factors if both parents both parents have similar activities, but I guess uh, I'm not sure about that. I'm just thinking that. Well, I mean, yeah, I mean, I, I, that would depend. I mean, you certainly could rule out the argument that children are just copying their same sex parent. If they're engaging in behaviors that, that where there is no same sex parent to copy. Mm -hmm. I mean, you certainly mm -hmm. could rule that argument out and you know, that literature may exist, but there's, there's also a fair amount of literature, which, 
which tells us quite clearly that there's a hormonal influence here. So, for instance, um, girls with something called CAH, congenital adrenal hyperplasia, um, and this is a basically a it's a, an excess of testosterone that girls get in utero uh, from their mother. So it's it's a congenital condition that they're born with. Um, these are girls who are biologically female, uh, anatomically female, but they just basically have more testosterone than the average female. And they exhibit, I mean, they're much more likely to identify as lesbian later. They are much more likely to have male-typed uh, toy preferences um, and to engage in a, a broad variety of male-type behaviors. So there's certainly evidence for a role of hormones here just sort of, I mean, just sort of at the, the role of testosterone and, and other sex-type hormones like oxytocin and those kinds of things. In I see. Okay, so let's, let's circle back to, uh, uh, to, to, um, to gender identity. Specifically, I want to talk for a minute about um, what people think of in 2020 when they hear about gender identity. Um, which is um, uh, adults, um, and in some cases children, um, that are uh, biologically male and identify as female or vice versa. Um, do, you, do, you have, uh, do you have thoughts about this? So do you mean like, it, like a, in terms of a, the clinical idea of gender identity, like children like children who cross gender identify so a little boy says i am a girl or a girl who well, says so, i am a boy so so okay so let me <clears throat> so let's just focus on let's just focus on young people for a second right okay. so um uh it, it, there are some cases where you have uh probably i don't know as young as 5 or 6 and the the child will you know, I am a, they're, they're biologically a boy, uh, you know, but they identify as a girl. I, I want to be a girl. They communicate this to their, their parents. They act this way, et cetera, et cetera. Um, there are a couple, there are a couple takes on this. One of them being, um, just, you just go with it as the parent, like, <laughs> you know, you, you identify as a, uh, if you're, you're born a boy, you identify as a girl, we're going to support that. We're going to go all in, 100% in, support that. That is that is your new identity, and we're going to treat you, you know, we're going to treat you like a girl if that's what you identify as. There are, there's another school of thought that's a little bit more um, middle of the road, which is to deal with this like as if the child said, I want to eat ice cream all day which is, you know, an equally valid preference for them. Yeah. Uh, but you would, you would treat it as, well, you know, you can't have ice cream for these meals, but we can have ice cream this time where, where you're, you're basically molding and, and modifying the overwhelming desire. Uh, do either of those takes uh, seem better or worse? Yeah. You know, it's interesting. I mean, as a, as a, a, as someone who has researched gender identity and as someone who's fairly well-versed in the gender identity literature, 
Um, you know, I can go back to what we were discussing earlier, that when you have four, five, and six-year-old children, um, it's totally normal for them to 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 say out loud uh, that they are the opposite sex just because they're doing things that opposite sex children would do. Um, I've seen this anecdotally uh, dozens of times. There's all kinds of research to support this idea that children, you know, really do believe that they are a different gender. And, and I mean, you could see how this could be quite pervasive in their daily lives, especially if it's being reinforced, that, you know, they might for a year say, you know, I'm a boy uh, when they're really a girl, you know, biologically or whatever. Um, on the other hand, you know, I can certainly empathize with parents who are kind of desperate for their children to be happy. And there's, there is a lot of research. I mean, if you're talking about, and this is why I made, was, this is why I wanted to make that clinical distinction. So if you're talking about gender dysphoria, which is um, sort of extreme distress and, and impairment and dysfunction as a result of feeling like your biological sex doesn't match, I certainly can empathize with parents who just want to do whatever it is that, that will make their kids happy. Um I because, I mean, I think yeah. I think that subjective distress can be real, um, especially as kids get older. I mean, especially as we get into adolescence, which, um, you know, is really the, the, the population, I think, that, that, that is most interesting right now. Ha are you familiar with this, this term, rapid onset gender dysphoria? I, I am not, no. So, <laughs> so there is um, this trend right now um, of uh, mostly biologically female, so adolescent females, um, sort of suddenly for the first time in their lives, um, outwardly expressing that they would like to change genders. So um, suddenly, I mean, like basically like at the beginning of adolescence, uh, identifying as male. So pre basically pre-puberty, um, maybe sort of at the beginning of puberty for a lot of them, um, but it's, I mean, it's a, it's a pretty strong trend. I mean, we're talking about rates that are, you know, five, six, ten times the rate of cross-gender identity that we would see in the average population. Like, one percent of adults, less than one percent of adults, identify as transgender. But in this particular population of adolescent girls, we're talking about, you know, five, six, ten percent, something like that which would indicate that it's, you know, there's something a bit more than just a traditional sort of, this is a, this is a little bit different than your traditional gender dysphoria. Um, and there are a lot of reasons why that may be. Um, but that's the population that I think is, is really interesting right now. And I, as a parent, I mean, you have, you know, it, as a parent, I can totally recognize why, you know, your 13-year-old daughter um, is all of a sudden for the first time saying things like, I want to be a boy, and if you don't let me be a boy, then I'm going to, you know, be really depressed. I'm anxious. I'm, I'm not doing well in school because of this. I don't, I'm not, I don't have any friends because of this. I mean, I can definitely see having been a teenage girl, um, why that would be extremely distressing to parents. Um, and I mean, I'm sure that's even more distressing when it's your four and five year old child, um, exhibiting, you know, that same kind of distress. So I don't know what the happy medium is. I, I really don't, I don't know. Um, I know what the implications are, you know, for for sort of long-term permanent changes, like through hormones or through surgical interventions and why that might be problematic. But just from a parenting perspective, I mean, I really don't know what the answer is, honestly. 
Yeah, I, I mean, it's obviously there's there's going to be case by case. I mean, especially when it comes to the 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 do you, you know do you undergo the hormone treatments because um, it's <clears throat> it seems to be the case that uh, that there are risks for there are actual risks for both sides. Like uh, you know the the most publicized risk is that you're uh, biologically male and you want to become female and uh, uh, the so you should not get any hormone treatment because if you get the hormone treatment then once you hit uh, adolescence um, <clears throat> if you get if you get the hormone treatment uh, once you hit adolescence you know, maybe maybe you were just gay right so there, there's there are these cases where you have oh. You know what I'm talking about? <laughs> oh, I do exactly what you're talking about. And that's what, like, with this rapid onset gender dysphoria, that's my concern, too. I mean, this population, you know, is probably, you know, primarily uh, girls, non-heterosexual girls, um, who have sort of come to believe and led to believe, you know, for a lot of reasons that they feel differently than other girls because they must be men. I mean, and in the long-term implications of that important, and let's not forget, I mean, just from a medical perspective, there's, there's little to no research on what is reversible, what is not reversible, what the long-term implications of any of these things are. Um, for one, because the population isn't that big. Um, and two, because we aren't really doing like, you know, appropriate clinical trials. I mean, it's, it's, it is, it is, you know, it's harder to get, um, a vaccine that hasn't been fully tested than it is to get some of these treatments that, that people want, um, you know, regarding gender. And I mean, it's just, it's really interesting how, how the medical, um, community has responded to this. I mean, we, we do not know what the long-term implications of these things are. The, the real question is, do, uh, receiving, uh, opposite gender hormones give you autism like vaccines? That's the real question. <laughs> that's, it's, it, I mean, that's so interesting to me that we are not asking these important questions. I mean, and I mean, I think you're making, I understand the joke and I, I get it. I mean, it's, a, and it's, it's an, it's an important question to ask though. What are the long, the things that we ask long-term implications about and the things that we don't ask long-term implications about are really interesting to me. It's like, with gender in particular, there is this notion that, um, I mean, and I think it's just the breakdown of the construct of gender in general. I mean, I think a lot of this just sort of boils down to we don't really like the idea of gender anymore, um, you know, because I think to a lot of adults, like I said, it's really not that important. So we don't right. feel like it should be important. So, I mean, I think that's part of it, too. Um, but well, I mean, it's well, gonna... you know, uh, Jean Twenge, uh, who I'm sure you're familiar with some of her work. Indeed. Um, uh, if you want to if any of the listeners want to check out a, a book of hers, uh, Generation Me is quite good. Um, you know, our culture has been um, has been ind individualistic uh, since its birth, uh, and uh, the tendency to become more individualistic is uh, is growing. And and what what that does is it, it you know the the good stuff is that. Um, individuals are not uh, they're not persecuted or or judged for uh, choices that they make and so th that that has lots of upside which is you know people of different race color um, um, ethnicity uh, sexual orientation all of those people now versus 50 years ago are just they're they're more accepted and that's that's the thumbs up 
the downside or the or the other side of the coin is that we 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 just make blanket statements about individual choices where it doesn't matter um, what the choice is we're going to say yep that's that's perfectly fine so if you want to give your uh, if you want to give a a, a seven year old or a, a ten year old who was born a boy and feels like they're a girl if we want to give them hormones no 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 that's fine we're not going to judge you you go ahead and do that um, or you know I mean there are lots of lots of different examples um, well I mean and just the idea that children are capable of cognitively making these kind of long-term choices I mean I hate this is a really 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 classic example so I don't mean to overuse it but um, we require minors to get consent for all kinds of things a piercing a tattoo uh, you know an abortion um, and yet we completely validate these other medical choices that have really long-term implications. I mean, more long-term implications than a piercing would uh, or a tattoo. Right. Well, uh, yeah. Again, yeah. As you know, as long as it's in in as long as it's something that someone wants to do, who are we to say? Who, who are we to, to deny them? Right. Well, but what, but I mean, why do we engage in that kind of gatekeeping with with a tattoo or a piercing? I, I, I really, I have a hard time, I think, wrapping my head around it. And it, it seems to be something that's specific to gender. Yes, it is. Yeah, I was just going to say, it, it is It is very special. Right? Yeah, it, yeah. We, we're not allowed to, you're not allowed to make, uh, to, to scrutinize these types of decisions, right? Um, so I would, I could talk about gender for hours, but um, there, <laughs> so you, <laughs> so, but you have some um, more current uh, research. Um, I do, yeah looking at um, narcissism. So um, now just for my own clarification and for listeners, there's a there's a there's a difference between the trait of narcissism and sort of narcissistic personality disorder. Mm-hmm. Could you just talk about uh, what, you know what what are some features of, 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 of narcissism? What are the what are the behaviors that we look for when we think of narcissism? So, like, in a clinical sense, you know, narcissistic personality disorder, we're looking for dysfunction, we're looking for impairment in social relationships, we're looking for, and that's the case with any personality disorder. With trait narcissism, we're, you know, I mean, we're basically talking about a series of unlikable characteristics. Um, they're unlikable in the sense that they're probably noticeable, um, they probably affect the way this person interacts with other people, but they're not necessarily impairing this person's ability to make friends, they're not impairing this person's ability to hold a job or to engage in romantic relationships or parent or any of those things. So some of the things that are sort of traditionally associated with trait narcissism are things like entitlement. And that word gets thrown around a lot, but entitlement is basically just a sense that you you deserve something because you are you. Um, you know, um, I you know I'm a, I'm a professor, so you know I'll hear students say things like um, you know um, my professors should meet with me in office hours. I'm sorry, my professors should provide tutoring for me if I need it. You know, like that's the kind of stuff that's entitlement. There's really nothing about my job that. Um, means that I should do that for you. That's your personal sense that you deserve that for no reason other than that you are you, right? 
And that's actually academic entitlement. That's the construct that we have for that. And it's very strongly associated with narcissism. And then um, there's exhibitionism, which is this sort of like, look at me, look at me. Um, you know, we see this a lot on social media, for instance, this idea that everyone sort of cares what is happening in your life um, and that you are going to be like sort of very um, ostentatious and sharing details of your life and those kinds of things. Yeah, because um, I, like I, 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 uh, I have the opposite of that. It's like, why would anybody care what I have to say? Or oh, I have, what, a, what I have I a very... <laughs> yeah, I have a strict rule. So, like, I only have about 250 friends on Facebook, okay? This is, like, nothing compared to most of the people I know. And I have a strict rule that I will not post something unless I'm certain that 20% of the people who follow me will enjoy it. Because, other, like, what's the point of posting it, honestly? If, if no one cares, then why am I putting this out there? Oh, uh, oh, well, I could come up with one off the top of my head. Stirring the pot, you, you know, you're oh, creating. A... <laughs> that, that, so that is, a, again, like a very narcissistic, this idea that you are somehow contributing uniquely to the social order or the social fabric or people's daily lives, that people are sitting around talking about you is very narcissistic. Like, like, um, doing, a, like doing a podcast and, and expecting people to listen. Uh, yeah, oh yeah, so, exactly. So uh, maybe, maybe we should move on a little bit from, <laughs> from the uh, <laughs> exactly. narcissism. No, no. Yes. Um, okay, so, so you said entitlement. Uh, you said exhibitionism. Yeah, and then there's also, I mean, there's there's a sort of nasty interpersonal side of it, too. So exploitativeness, you know, narcissists. Um, you know, I don't want to say blanket that they, like, lack empathy because I don't think that's necessarily the case. But um, they certainly will uh, they will exploit resources around them. There's things like vanity, which is what everyone thinks of when they think of narcissism. Um, I just want to sort of clarify, too, narcissism has an an upside too. Um, so a lot of narcissists are actually quite self-sufficient. Um, they're quite comfortable with leadership. They're quite comfortable taking authority roles. Um, and so narcissism can actually have some benefits as well. Yeah, they could uh, definitely the, the, the charismatic leader, you know, often, often does, they've got their narcissistic traits, but uh, can definitely uh, uh, generate loyalty and, and, and because of their because they, they tend to be compelling personalities. Oh, I mean, one of my dream studies, like if I could do any study ever, would be to uh, sort of find look at narcissism scores on average in Congress and in, among politicians in general. Because if you think about what it takes to be a successful politician, it takes all of these things. Like, yes, you have to have leadership ability. Yes, you have to be comfortable with authority, but you also have to be pretty exhibitionistic. Yeah. And um, it's, it's interesting because it, it, it's why it's why there aren't uh, it, it's why there aren't any scientists in our government in, in a, as legislators or anything like that, because if you think about tra trajectories, uh, the ones with low self-esteem are the ones that are studying in high school and hitting the books. And then when they get to college or grad school, they're going into academic professions that were that uh, you know that they're going. They're your doctors, your researchers, your scientists, etc. And the ones that didn't go down a strong academic path, those are the ones that are ending up in these leadership positions. 
and and so yeah, you, you get a it's 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 a it's a you know self-selected sample. Uh, you know, the, it's it, it's interesting you say that though because I feel like there is actually a fair amount of narcissism in academia. <laughs> Oh, that's that is definitely true. Um, <laughs> and, it, and I mean, again, like think about these qualities that it takes. So if you like, and I don't necessarily mean the best academics, but I mean the ones who are the most well known. You know, your famous academics, and I, you know, I could name a few of them, but who knows who's listening? So I don't want to turn anyone off. But I mean, just like where where I work at a universities I've worked at, just internally, the most visible people tend to be people that sort of shamelessly self-promote their work. They assume that everyone wants to hear about, you know, whatever their most recent book is, uh, when everyone in the room also has a book that came out, you know, like um, they uh, can be very vain uh, in the way that they promote themselves internally. I mean, there's actually a lot of things about narcissism that would actually be um, associated with success in academia. Yeah, I I personally am not good at self-promotion, but... Uh, yeah, nar- if there's one thing that a narcissist is good at, it's it's self-promotion. For sure. Uh, now, now, um, now, how? So, um, w- when you're looking at at these traits in children, right? Uh, now, to to me, it, it it almost it almost feels like children are supposed to be narcissists in the sense that, you know, if you if you Take this hypothetical. Uh, take a hypothetical scenario where you have two children on their own, and one of them, uh, and let's say there's there are scarce resources, and you're walking in the woods, and and one kid finds some berries, and the other's like, no, oh, no, those are my berries, and takes them and grabs them. If if those ki- if that kid has those berries, that little narcissist is going to be more likely to survive if 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 you have this kind of scarce resource scenario um does that do you think that that a little bit of narcissism is good for for young children no i mean i'm not even sure if it's a little bit i mean i just the survival scenario that you mentioned yes for sure but i mean also just in the day-to-day behaviors that children are asked to do i mean if you let's say for instance you want your five-year-old to start playing soccer um you know, your your five year old. It's it's highly unlikely that your five year old is somehow naturally able, like just naturally able to kick this ball around. Knows exactly where the play is. Knows where to throw stuff. Whatever. Um, but a narcissistic five year old is one who's actually really quite confident in their abilities and they they look at other kids and they convince themselves that they're better than other kids at this particular sport and this particular thing um because they have this sense of superiority um you know they're also going to be kind of exhibitionistic they want people to watch them when you think about it these are the kids who are going to be most likely to continue engaging in this and they're gonna and and they might even be more likely to continue engaging in it in response to their own failure. So they might actually be more determined to continue doing this thing because they've already convinced themselves that they're the best. Um, So in some ways you could make the argument, and this is sort of the the conventional wisdom around narcissism in children, that they are, um, it's actually quite an adaptive trait up until a certain age because it really motivates them to continue doing stuff, even stuff that they're bad at. Yeah, that's that's what's always bothered me about some of these traits i know the um uh, this uh, you know if you go even younger um you know you think of the trait of um of uh blindly obeying 
uh, a parent that that's actually functional in young children. Yeah. Uh, being being the standout one, not so much functional because if you're a if you're a very young child and you you know you're the rebel and you don't listen to your parents, well, th- that those are the children that are gonna you know stumble into the wrong bush and 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 or or you know fall down a rocky uh, cliff or something like that because they're not listening to their parent. Um, so uh, it's interesting how so many of these traits, even though we hate them as adults, uh, they tend to be functional when they're when they're younger. Um, so the um, so so there's some benefit for children having this narcissist narcissistic tendency. Um, where does everything go awry? I assume that there's a second part to this story. Um, well, I mean, there's there's actually a, a, a good body of research that talks about where narcissism comes from, like the kind of maladaptive narcissism that we're worried about later. And interestingly enough, you know, one of the biggest things we can link to this is parenting behaviors. So um, there are certain parenting uh, styles, you know, sort of p- general patterns of behavior that some parents do, you know, parents who are really permissive, who just sort of let their kids you know, who let the prisoners run the asylum, basically, Um, you know, that can be associated with narcissism. Um, And then um, parents who say things that are kind of narcissistic to their children, like, oh, you got an A on your test? You must be the smartest kid in the class. Uh, That can encourage narcissistic thinking, as opposed to parents who say things like, oh, you know, see, that's because you really, you know, you worked hard on your homework last night. That's why you did so well on that test. Um, that encourages self-esteem, which is different than narcissism. Um, self-esteem is more of um, a sense of self-worth because you've earned it or because you worked hard or because you have some specific skill set, as opposed to narcissism, which is self-worth in a kind of empty way. Like, you know, again, just I'm superior because I'm me, because I'm the smartest, not because I work the hardest. And, you know, one of those is healthier than the other. So I think one thing that's interesting, and I think this is kind of what you're driving toward, is that we really should be encouraging self-esteem in children. We, we really should be, we should be telling children when they've done something correctly and how their um, effort has contributed to their outcome. Um, but we shouldn't be telling kids that they're the smartest or the funniest or the prettiest in the room um, because that's actually contributing to narcissism, which is not sustainable and, and, and frankly, not particularly likable for adults. Yeah, I, I don't have children, but, I, you know, I, I sympathize with the with the struggle because, uh, you know, the idea that you want to let's take this idea. I want to do everything I can to help my child succeed. Mm-hmm. That's a vague idea. And it, it you know, if, it seems to me that, that, that half of parents execute it as I will do everything. And that, and that means doing their homework. That means uh, praising them for every little thing. And then you see a, another group where, where it, you know, it's more about, um, it, you know, it, it, it's more about being uh, teaching discipline and, and, and being an authority figure and laying down boundaries. Um, it seems as though um, there are two different versions of I will do everything for my child. So, it, it, But what it seems like you're saying is that one of these paths is going to be more likely to, to, to lead towards these narcissistic traits later on. 
Yeah, I mean, boundaries are important. I think discipline is important. I think, you know, I think one thing that's really important is that, and I think this is something a lot of parents have struggled with. I struggle with it. Um, you know, many of my friends have a joke. Caretaking is natural. You know, it's, 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 frankly, it's easy to keep your children alive. What is actually not natural for a lot of people is parenting, is, is making decisions for your children that will actually benefit them. And I think one thing, parents have a really hard time separating, myself included. I mean, I constantly have to fight these challenges, is that we, we, we are, parents are sort of naturally driven to prepare their children for life. Um, but I think a lot of parents sometimes forget that, that their children, you're, you really need to be preparing your children for life away from you. Your ultimate goal as a parent should be to rear a kid who will be um, able to make their own decisions. And both of the parents that you just described, the parent who is sort of overly permissive and the parent who is overly disciplinarian, um, are both parents who are actually raising children to live a life uh, constantly around them. You know, they're raising children who are incapable of making their own decisions. Um, so and, what you just said was was interesting. And, and it, 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 you basically brought up my, you know, something that I'm, I'm terrified of, which is the idea that you should be preparing your child to be away from you. That is not necessarily true today. I mean, you see, as you see, kids are young people are living at home longer and longer, moving back after college mm -hmm. to the to the point where where I don't. Like, I don't know. There are plenty of, of examples off the top of my head of 20-somethings who, you know what? No, they, they don't need to be in the real world. Mom will allow them to stay here. Mom will feed them, even though they're they're getting into their late 20s. Maybe I can't see this ending. It could be early 30s. Um, it, where, you know, I don't know. Maybe there, it, maybe it, we're, we're evolving towards something where where no you don't have to prepare someone for the uh, for the real world without them well so it's interesting you say that because i've thought about this a fair amount and i agree with you in the sense that we don't i mean what we do and what we should do are different in my opinion you know there's all kinds of reasons why we should be encouraging people not to live with their parents um like you know it's better for the economy if more people are you know living under different i mean like there's all kinds of reasons why it's better for people not to live with their parents. However, I do understand what you're saying that, I mean, practically speaking, we see a lot of people living with their parents and frankly, parents don't seem distressed by this. I, I anecdotally, and I think you would agree with me, know quite a few parents who are perfectly happy to have their parent, their kids live under the roof till like forever. Um, kids, grandkids, you know, whatever, everyone just live with me. Um, however, but I mean, you still, your kid still is probably going to go to work. Um, your kid might even move away to college for four years. Um, and even now, I mean, like I said, I, you know, I have young children, they spend eight hours a day away from me. Um, and frankly, it's not, it's not me who they're, who they need to impress to be successful in life. I mean, just to, to get into college, to, to, um, sort of get into the club that you want to get into, to make the friends that you want to get, make, um, they don't need to impress their parents. They need to impress their peers and their teachers, um, and if you raise a child who is completely incapable of impressing anyone but you as a parent, then you're really not doing an effective job at making them capable of living a like productive life. Yeah, Does that I, make I, sense? Agree. I agree. Um, I, you know, my thought, my thought has always been that um, 
that, you know, the whole point of being a parent is to take a bunch of traits that are very helpful when you're young. These, these, you know, these maybe a, an inflated self, inflated sense of self-esteem and, 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 um, and low attention, all, all of these traits that are perfectly fine and perfectly healthy in a young person. As a parent, you, you need to strip all that away and, 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 and raise an adult. It's yeah. turning them, it's that transition from having these traits that we find repulsive in adults. Uh, you know, that's mine. Like, all that stuff, you know, the, the lying that children do, that's perfectly normal uh, in children. It is not normal as an adult. And it's, it seems as though, yeah, our goal as, as a parent should be to remove all that and, and, and create uh, a human that, that plays well with others and, and is an adult that has the traits of being an adult. Yeah. yeah, I mean, because all the, the, I mean, the the data are really clear on this that children who behave more more adult like are are more well liked by adults. And listen, there's nothing that's better for your kid than than adults wanting to be around them, um, and other kids wanting to be around them too. But I mean, I, even other kids are more drawn to to kids who are emotionally well adjusted and who are. Um, sort of capable of of moderating their feelings and who are trustworthy and all these things. I mean, all these likable, mature characteristics are more desirable in the peer group and to adults. And and you know, I think a lot of parents really struggle with this idea um, that you know, if my children, if my child psychologically wants something, then it must be good for them. And, and this is just not true. Mm-hmm. Well. Uh, re- uh, Rachel, uh, we've we've gone over time. I I, I really appreciate the conversation. Um, uh, we we covered quite a bit. Uh, thank you so much for being on. Uh, it's been a pleasure. Um, thank you so much. Yeah, absolutely. Anytime. Happy to come back on. you enjoy that conversation. Uh, We did touch on narcissism a bit, and if you're interested in that topic, you'll really enjoy the next episode uh, where I talk to Dr. Ramani Dervasala, who is a narcissism expert. So you can look forward to that in our November release. Uh, Don't forget to rate and review the pod on iTunes. It helps out quite a bit. You can also visit our Facebook page, Uh, Go to Facebook and type in Why Do We Do That, and you should be able to find us. Uh, If you want to email me, you can email me at whydoweedothatpodcast at gmail.com. That's whydoweedothatpodcast at gmail.com. You can also ask Alexa to play Why Do We Do That Podcast uh, if you prefer to listen that way. And we are also now on Instagram. You can find us at Why Do We Do That Podcast. Once again, that's at Why Do We Do That Podcast. So until next time, I'm Dr. Ryan Moyer, hoping you found some answers to the question, why do we do that? <laughs>